All right, guys, what bees are known for besides pollinating, cross-pollinating, besides being uh, producers of honey and producers of pollen, and besides being producers of uh, stuff like wax that is used in, in pharmaceutic and cosmetic industry, and for candle making, and there's many other uh, varieties of use for wax, bees are known as weapons because they have weapons, right? <laughs> bees can sting. Bees can sting, and it's pretty painful. Even you, when you are a beekeeper for many years, if you get stung by a bee, you feel the pain. And your automatic response, if you don't have protection, because normally with non-Africanized bees, when in, on a good, in a good weather, you can work without any protection. You don't, for example, when I was a kid, like a 16-year-old kid, I worked my bees in just shorts. And of course, I had gentle bees like Italian or Carniolian bees. You just, if you are gentle with them, gently take the, co the comb out, look at it, put gently back. If you don't smoke and you don't have cologne, if you don't smell like sweaty and stinky, they don't mind you working with them. So, um, however, if you are a boisterous type, if you come to the hive and just go like this, okay, let's move things around. <laughs> the bees don't like them. They like gentle spirit. They, they, they like a person to go gently like, like this. Take a little gently off. Take a, your motions should be fluid and smooth. If you just go, you know, the bees don't like karate. They, they like yoga. All right. <laughs> they, they, so um, killer bees, that's a very scary name. And people heard about killer bees. And uh, you, you can go on YouTube or you can go and research about killer bees. And you have these horror stories about killer bees. So what are these killer bees? Why do they sting? Well, basically, stinging is a natural response of, of a colony of the bee to what? To a perceived threat, right? They, they, if you, let's, ex for example, think this is a bee colony, right? And this is the front of the bee colony, and the bees fly in and out here. As a beekeeper, I want to be less disruptive to their life. If I don't dis disturb them and disrupt their life, they won't be stinging me. So if I come to the hive gently, let's imagine this is the lid to the hive, and I gently come from the back of the hive or the side of the hive, I gently take the lid off, I put it gently down so I don't squish any bees, all right? And I gently take a frame with comb out, I check for whatever I need to check, I gently put it back without squishing any bees or killing any bees, they won't sting me. I, I can work like this with the bees and, and it's going to be all right. However, here's another scenario. I run into my colony from the front where they fly in and out they perceive me as a threat. And I just bang on a colony, I take the lid off really fast, I, I drop it down, I grab a frame. As I grab it, I bump the frame on the walls of the hive, squishing bees left and right. Guess what? They are threatened. There's somebody destroying their hive. Imagine if you're sitting here and this is your home, this is your living room, and all of a sudden somebody rips the roof off. What your reaction is to that, right? And somebody's trying to, to grab stuff from your house, you know. It's their reaction to protect their house, their colony. 
That's why they sting, and stinging is their only defense. Yes? Um, um, anytime after sunset, when the temperatures are 60 degrees and above, and sun, I'm, oh, I'm so, sorry, sunrise. Anytime <laughs> between the sunrise and through sunset, uh, avoid doing it right before sunset because it's cooling off and the bees are disturbed when you do it right before sunset. So anytime half an hour or an hour, when the temperatures are 65 and above, would be fine. If it's not windy, if it's not you know, like stormy, when the weather is changing and the atmospheric pressure is changing, the bees are agitated. When the storm is coming, have you noticed how the ants come out and scurry around before the storm? The bees do the same. So if you come to work your colony right before the storm, the colony senses it and the colony feels, I don't want my roof off. I want my roof on. It's going to rain and possibly hail, you know. So they don't like that. So you do that. So why do they sting? They protect their colony. They protect themselves. It's their natural response if there's some kind of threat. Now, where I live, we have bears. So bears come to your colony. They take the lid off. They grab a piece of comb, and they eat it. Now, bears look dark, woolly, almost black. And we call them black bears in California. The bees aim for the dark black spots. So bear has black eyes, so they'll go for his eyes, right? I have dark eyes, they'll go for my eyes too. They go for my eyebrows, they'll go for your hair. Whoever has black hair, they'll go for your hair. If you have black eyes, they'll go for your eyes. They, they go for, for darker colors. Why? Because normal predators like bears, they, they are dark and, and, and that's how bees detect. Oh, that's a predator, that's some, some danger, some threat. So they, they go, the, the bees don't like woolly, dark colored colors. Something made of wool, don't wear it around the hive. Something Black, don't wear it around the hive. So that's, that's just natural for the bees. Now, what can aggravate them? If you mow the lawn right next to the hive, or weed eat right in front of the hive, guess what? They don't like vibration. They don't like loud, no loud noises. Why? Because their bodies are made out of um, special membranes. Um, it's the same stuff that makes up your nails and your hair it's resonating really easy. So if you have a vibrating loud machine, their whole body is vibrating and shaking. You won't like that. So the bees immediately mobilize their soldiers, send them out to chase away whoever is disturbing their peace, right? So you don't want to mow right uh, you know, in the middle of the day. If you want to mow around the beehive, come at night after sunset, right, when it's dark. And don't stay too long in front of a beehive because even at night they will start coming out of the hive because it's vibrating and noisy and they don't like it. They might even fly at night to sting you and chase you away. So you don't want that. You don't want to, to be obnoxious around bees and bump the hive. You don't want to do your karate moves about, about the bees, right? You don't want to smoke. I, I hope you don't smoke, but uh, you know, if, if if, you, if you're around bees, you don't want to have strong cologne. You don't want you know, to smell like you haven't showered for five days. Because you know, you, they will sting. They will be agitated and aggravated, right? So when you injure a bee or when some other bee stung something else, in this case, who do they fight, these bees? They, they are trying to sting and chase away somebody. This is a drone, right, a male. So they are getting rid of this male. If one bee stung another bee or the bee stung me, immediately the sense, the smell of the venom 
will send a signal to the rest of the guard bees, uh, soldier bees, that there's war has been declared and there's military action and activities happening. So many more, tens and sometimes hundreds, will come and join in into this fight. So if you are stung, for example, this drone would do good to run away so not to be stung more. And if you are stung once, back off a little bit from the hive so they don't smell that and just wash it off with water and like a minute later come back to the hive. Hi. <laughs> My classmate or schoolmate, Cindy, right? <laughs> good to see you. So um, we, we want to avoid killing bees because the moment you killed a bee in a hive, it sends signals that, hey, we are threatened, we are in danger. Send some help, send some soldiers to defend our colony, right? Now, you don't want to stand in front of a hive. You don't want to open your hive in the stormy weather, right, or cold weather. When the weather is below 50, don't open your colony. Or even below 60, it's not a good idea. 60 and above, it's okay. Um, all right? Now, you don't want to, um, to transport your bees from one bee yard to another bee yard. And as you transported them, you put them down. You don't want to open the lid because they are very agitated. Whether you smell good or not, they will come and sting you. They are upset. All right? Even if you wear your white robe, they still will sting you because they are so agitated after you move them. Right? You don't want dark woolly clothing. They don't like it. They'll sting you. So these are some of the ABCs. What are Africanized killer bees? They are same size as any other bee. They look the same, you won't tell the difference. The only difference is they are highly aggressive, all right? Their aggression level is 10 or 20 times higher than any other breed. The, the reason they are that way, they are very protective of their colony. I told you, if you stand in front of a colony or, or go like this on a colony, knock, 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 who's there? An intruder. So a regular, let's say an Italian breed will send maybe three or ten soldiers or guards to defend their colony and they will fly around you to sting you right one or two of them will sting you for example you back off you run about 10 15 20 yards away and they leave you alone they go back the soldiers go back and say okay we chased this guy away so they are okay now africanized bees they are so aggressive that if i came to the hive I don't even knock at the hive, I just look at the hive, and they notice me and they say, oh, there's an intruder. Instead of five or 10 soldiers or guards, they will send 100 or 1,000 guards, all right? And I will be not just backing off gently, I'll be running full speed. And they will be after me, not just for 50, 20 or 50 yards, they will be running uh, or chasing me for about a mile. And, and if I jump in my truck, and shut the door, and of course, maybe 20 or 30 or 100 will sting me. If I shut the door, they still will fly around my truck for, for hours and hours and hours. They, they, they would want me uh, away and gone, you know. <laughs> that's, that's how aggressive they are. Now, Africanized bees are that way not because they are naturally aggressive. They are a result, a result of human interference or meddling with the genetics. What happened? Uh, let me show you the picture. Oh, there we go. What happened? There were some experiments done in Brazil where the African bee, who was a very hardworking bee, just a tiny bit more aggressive, not much more, 
just a tiny bit more aggressive than Italian, was crossbred with Italian. Some of the scientists said, hey, it would be a good thing, because these are slightly aggressive, not bad, but just slightly aggressive. Um, it would be good if we combine the gentleness of Italian, because Italian bees are very gentle, with these hardworking African bees, and maybe the resulting bee would be gentle and hardworking. So as they were doing these experiments, as a result um, the, of interfering with genetic stuff, what happened, there was genetic um, amplified aggression. So they became 20 times more aggressive and maintained their hard working ability, but didn't become gentle at all. So Italian genetics somehow interfered with, with their aggression, or somehow that gene was magnified, and they became more aggressive. Now, that particular um, variety of bees was kept in a laboratory in Brazil, and somehow a swarm escaped. And that was in the 50s, like, like last century, right? 60 years ago, right? <laughs> and that swarm you know, escaped and lived somewhere in the wild on a tree, and you know, they have very strong desire to swarm. Very soon they made more swarms and those swarms made more swarms and 20, 30 years later, they spread over the whole South America. They crossed through all these inter-America countries, right? They came all the way to Mexico. They came to Texas here and Southwest. And today, this is the map for today in the US. The redder, the hotter, the bluer, the fewer, right? <laughs> so the red areas designate the number of Africanized colonies. So we have tons of Africanized colonies in South Texas, right? Lots of them. We have Africanized bees around here where we are. We have quite a few of them. If you find, if you find a wild swarm, be careful because it could be Africanized. So if you approach it, put your full suit protection. That means a veil or a full suit that zips up, gloves, boots, so they cannot sting you. They could be Africanized, and that means that they are 20 times more aggressive, and they will sting you, and they'll chase you for a mile, <laughs> all right? So put your protection, come to the colony, and try to squirt them with water if you want to collect your swarm, spray them with water, shake them in a box, and you will be able to assess. If they are not Africanized, you will have maybe 10, 20 of them trying to sting you. Those are the guards, right? And you'll say, okay, this is a fine colony. You know, it's not Africanized, it's not aggressive. But if you have thousands of them trying to sting you, they are Africanized. You want to back off and not, uh, not mess with them. Or you may want to spray them with soap solution so they, they just die. You, you, I don't believe it's, it's possible for us to get rid of Africanized bees today. They are, they are part of where we live now. But they are as far now as Central California. They are as far as Nevada. And we even have some in Arkansas and Oklahoma. Some in Louisiana. Oh, here's Arkansas, here's Louisiana. Some in Oklahoma. That's as far as they went. We don't have Africanized bees up in the northern states yet. But you know, beekeepers migrate quite often. They move the bees from here all the way to North Dakota to harvest clover honey or sunflower honey. There's poss good possibility that eventually we'll get, we'll get the Africanized bees up all the way there. Um, the only danger is that you can get stung and possibly killed. It takes about 300 um, bees to 
kill an average person. So this is not a killer bee swarm. It's just regular swarm. And a person fully naked, maybe in swimming trunks, would be, would be okay with regular bees, right? With regular non-Africanized bees. Now, this what would look if an Africanized colony were after you. They would just, thousands of them will come on you and try to sting you. Now, this is not Africanized bee swarm. They are just resting on this guy because this guy probably put some pheromone, like queen pheromone on him somewhere, or maybe put a queen on himself. So the swarm came and started sitting on him as if it were a tree, you know. <laughs> All this guy needs to do, come to an empty box, empty colony, and just do like this. <laughs> And all of these will just fall off, <laughs> fall off down in the box, and he'll be fine. So um, we have an average tolerance of an average guy is 300 stings. If, if I get stung about 300 times, and I am not allergic to bees, I probably will die. I was stung with about 100 bees once. I had this beautiful eight-story colony because I learned how to do double queen hives. And I thought, well, let me do a double queen hive. That basically means that instead of one queen laying eggs, you have two queens laying eggs in one colony. That increases your honey productions three times or four times. You have two queens working for you, you have two or three times more honey. So I had this tall hive about this tall, and I couldn't look inside. So I took a ladder, leaned it against the fence, climbed the ladder, and started looking inside of this colony. And the ladder gave way and started leaning. And I leaned against the hive, and the hive fell. It was on a hill like this. And the hive started falling down and rolling down, splitting. I saw these sparkling drops of honey flying, and, the, and then I see these thousands of bees flying. And I had no suit, I just had shorts. So I had about a hundred of them stinging me, and I was just swiping them off like this, and running away like a bear. So. By that, by the end of the day, I had slightly elevated temperature, and I felt a little feverish, but it was all right. Now, if I had 300 of those guys staying me, I probably would not be here today. So thank God um, it, it, it didn't happen. Now, here's, um, here's something that we need to talk about now besides the why the bees sting. Let me get rid of this. Let's continue on with uh, this topic, we, we sort of shared the ABCs of, of beekeeping. Let's talk about the jobs the bees do. Um, as the bee is born, the first, second day, the kind of jobs the bees do are very simple. They clean and polish the cells and everything in a hive, right? They are just youngest. Now children, those of you who are between the ages of three and seven or ten, in your family, you probably do similar jobs, right? You help mama clean, you help uh, doing dishes sometimes, you sweep, you, you wipe, you dust, you, you polish things. That's what the bees do when they're young toddler bees. They are fully developed, but they are not as skilled. And anatomically, all, not all their organs and glands are ready to do the jobs that they are supposed to be doing. So the first couple of days, they will do simple jobs of maintaining the hive cleaning, polishing stuff. Now, the third, fourth, and fifth day of life. Remember, the bees don't live years. At the age of three days, the bees live about 30, 40, um, 30, 40 uh, days, but that's not the, the life of the bee. Anyway, on the third, fourth, and fifth day, roughly, 
And remember, they could interchange jobs. Neighbors could interchange jobs. Even the older bees could interchange jobs when there's not enough young bees. The older bees will do other jobs too. So the not-so-experienced bees, on, you know, on their fourth or fifth day of life, they will feed older larvae. They will provide food for them. When they become experienced enough, it's sort of like working in a daycare, working with toddlers, right? Now, when they become a little older and more experienced, between 6th and 11th day of their life, they will be skilled enough to work with neonatal care, right? <laughs> with babies. They will take care of tiny little new larvae, right? Then, at the age between 12 and 17, they developed wax glands that produce wax. They can start producing wax and building comb, right? Uh, then, basically, their jobs are determined by their age. The older they get, the, 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 the more experienced they are and the more ready and uh, developed their glands become that will produce certain substances. Now, these bees also will be able to produce royal jelly. They have glands right here that produce royal jelly to feed the baby larvae or the baby eggs and feed the queen. Eventually, at the age of 18, they are drafted to serve in the army, right? They are guards guarding the entrance, and that's their job. Um, at the age of 22 to 25, actually, actually 22 to 35 and 40, for 45, they do all the field jobs. From the age of 22 and on, they are field bees. They do stuff outside. So before the age of 22, they are basically indoor workers. At the age of 22 days old, they start working outside. What kind of jobs? They visit flower, they pollinate, they collect pollen, nectar, propolis, and water. Did you know that water is very important for the bees? Now, they accomplish a couple of things with water. First of all, they do not have air conditioner, right? And they live sometimes in hot weather like Texas or Arizona or Southern California. It can be hot. So what do they do? You've heard about swamp coolers, and Texas is not big on that. West Texas has swamp coolers. Arizona has swamp coolers. East Texas and Central Texas doesn't use those much. But swamp, a swamp cooler is a device that you have in your house that uses spray of water, blowing air through it. The water evaporates. As, as it evaporates, it robs the walls and the air in the house of temperature. It basically takes away the hot temperature. So the bees do the same. They collect water. They put droplets of water inside of their hive. Just hang it on the frames, hang it on the walls of the hive, and then they fan their wings, evaporating that water. As the water evaporates, it takes lots of energy away from the colony to evaporate the water. So the beehive cools down, and they maintain nice and, and comfortable temperature around 96 degrees in a hive, even though outside it could be 120 degrees, right? Now, if it becomes so hot that they have too many bees running around in a hive, they also may come out of the colony and start congregating on the front of the hive and sometimes make a huge cluster or a beard underneath the hive. They'll be just hanging there, you know, trying to cool off. And they will provide plenty of water on the walls of the hive. And so it won't be crowded. They'll stay outside until it cools off and then go back. So they need water for cooling, right? That's their air conditioner. They need water for another reason. If you have 
Come right in, folks. You're welcome. Uh, come, um, let's, for example, say that, uh, that um, it's springtime and not so many flowers are blossoming yet. And you don't have much fresh food to feed the babies. And you have supply of honey in the colony. Now, the honey is pretty thick, and your baby larva cannot eat the honey straight. So the bees bring water and dilute the honey so it's the right consistency to feed the babies. So they make soup out of honey, liquid enough to feed the babies, right, to feed the little larvae. So that's why they need um, the water. Of course, uh, on the very, very last day of their life, maybe at the age of 35 to 40, somewhere there, the bees worn out. The bee's wings are worn out. It doesn't have as much strength and energy. It can only do very limited jobs. Her glands are already old, cannot produce uh, wax, cannot produce uh, royal jelly. So they become basically the keepers of the hive. They will fan their wings to keep the hive uh, cool. They may bring some water. They still can do that. And eventually they just die. They fly out and die out there. And that's the end of the life's, of life of a bee. Uh, here's a, a typical bee day. You can see what, what happens inside of the hive. And the workers will, will, be, you know, will be doing all these jobs. The worker bees do that. These cells right here, they are capped babies. They are cocooned or they are about to hatch. And somewhere, probably have a different slide, you'll see a bee ready to hatch out. Uh, these worker bees just walk around keeping the brood warm or cool if necessary. These shiny cells, take a guess what that is. Honey, honey that's nectar or honey, ready to be sealed. And the way they know when to seal the honey is they taste it and see whether its consistency is ripe, if it's ripe enough. If the water content is too high, they will not seal the cell. They will keep fanning and warming up that nectar to evaporate as much water as possible out of the nectar. And when the consistency reaches 80% sugar and 20% honey, they will say, oh, the honey is ripe. And they will seal or can this little cell and it'll be ready for the next few years, a few hundred years. Honey doesn't go bad ever. So these cells right here, you see these cells? red, burgundy, orange, yellow, white. These are the cells filled with bee pollen, which serves as bread for the bees or protein for the bees. That's uh, very interesting how they deliver it. You see this bee still has a little piece of pollen on her leg. They bring the pollen on their legs. They drop it off in the cell, and then they pack it in the cell with their head. Bump, 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 bump. <laughs> and it's there. They packed it, and it's ready for the winter. It has to undergo a fermentation process. So it's not straight fresh pollen. They add a little nectar to it, and they allow that cell to ferment. Fermentation basically means it's, um, it's sort of like yogurt made out of milk, right? It, it's a way of preserving pollen so it doesn't go bad. So they... They keep this for the winter to feed the babies because there's no flowers in early spring and they use this stuff and the honey that they saved to feed the little babies and that's how they survive, right? So let's look at some of the breeds. This is your 
carniolian bee, and it basically is gray and black. You see the gray-black stripes on its, on its abdomen? It's fuzzy. When the bee is just born, it's hairy and fuzzy. You see how fuzzy it is? It's a young bee. The more jobs the bee does, the more cells it visits, it rubs off the, the fuzz, the hairs, right? And it becomes glossy and black. So how can you tell the age of the bee? If it's fuzzy and, and hairy, it's young. If it's glossy and, and darker color, it's old, right? All right. This is Caucasian bee. Very similar. And sometimes people combine these two varieties. Some people say, oh, that's Caucasian, that's Carniolian. Now, this is a German bee. These are fairly peaceable bees, hard workers. They also work at lower temperatures. Like average bee would fly out a hive around 50 degrees, 55 degrees. This bee, um, Caucasian bee, will fly out at cooler temperatures. So even at, at maybe 48 degrees, 50 degrees, it'll fly out and start looking for flowers. So it's, it's good for cool weather, mountain climate. German bee, for example, is, is a hard worker. However, this bee is slightly more aggressive than these two varieties. And the first bees that came to the U.S. were German bees. They were this variety. And they, they, they are slightly more aggressive. And some people in Amish country in Pennsylvania out there still keep German bees. Most beekeepers today keep Italian bees and some other varieties. But most people like Italian for their gentle spirit. Yes. Oh, correct. Honeybee is not indigenous to the uh, Americas, yes. We had other bees there. We have hundreds of varieties of other bees which are good pollinators, but they are not honey producers. They only produce enough honey for one, uh, for the summer, just for the babies. They don't store honey for the winter. Now, honeybee is the only one that does that. Now, Italian bee is the most popular with the American beekeepers, and you see the difference? It's blonde. It's sort of like yellowish. And um, there's a variety of Italian called Cordovan, which is more Spanish. Cordova is a region in Spain. So Cordovan bee is just like that, blonde, only its blondness extends almost all the way to the, to the tip of its abdomen. This has like three or four bands that are black, right? Now, Cordovan bee also will have a blonde or gold thorax or shoulders. This regular Italian has black shoulders or black uh, thorax. All right, so that's Italian, most popular, most gentle of all the bees. There's a disadvantage to that. It's so gentle that it doesn't protect its hive very well. So very often, Italian bees will rob each other. They, they, just, they say, hey, it's too hard to fly one mile away to get nectar from there. And they say, well, I smell nectar right here next door. So they will fly out of their colony and go one yard away to another colony and start robbing the honey from there and taking into this hive. Now, Italians don't protect their colonies as well because they are so gentle. They, they don't have many soldiers. Uh, yes, go ahead. Um, I was going to say, does the aggression also affect production? Um, so in other words, the more aggressive bee uh, produces more honey? The more aggressive bee produces more honey when the honey's flow is low. Like, let's say there's flowers there, but they don't produce much nectar the aggressive bee will produce more honey. Now, the Italian bee will not. It's, it's a lazy variety. It only will it'll, it'll produce lots of honey when there's very good honey flow. Basically, when there's plenty of flowers with nectar, it will produce well, but not as um, 
as well in the time when there's not enough flowers out there. However, the Italian adapted this way. It says, okay, no nectar there, or very poor nectar there. I have to work full hour to get this one milligram of honey. I have this neighbor that has honey already stored. I'll just go there, and in one minute I fill up my full tank and go back. That's, if they think that, I don't know. But I think that's their thinking. <laughs> and that's the effect of, 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 of the fall of our nature. It's not just the humans that fell morally. Nature is degraded also. Yes? Uh, my fav favorite kite probably is Italian. Um, and the reason I like them, they breed very fast. Italians are, <coughs> are very good in breeding when there's honey flow. When there's plenty of flowers and nectar and honey available, they breed very fast. They will also swarm. If you have such a strong, powerful colony, they'll swarm fast too. So you need to prevent that. Yes, you could if you had thousands of acres or hundreds of acres. Now, if you plant a few plants around your hive, it will provide just a little nectar for them and a little pollen, but it's hard to provide for a commercial honey harvest. You have to have hundreds of acres of something to provide for their needs. Because um, let's say within three miles around your house, if you have some kind of wildflower source or trees that blossom, and here in Texas, mesquite is a good source of nectar. Mesquite is a very good source of nectar around here. So if you have mesquite around, it'll produce enough honey for about 200 hives. If you have 200 hives, 300, uh, three mile radius is sufficient pasture. And three mile radius, that would be what? About, I don't know, 600 acres or what? Maybe more. Maybe more, I don't know. But more, more what? Oh, there we go. So it's like eight, it's it's like uh, eight, like maybe twelve hundred acres. That's for how many hives? Eighteen for two hundred. However, they are not limited just to three miles. The bees will fly up to maybe five miles. If there's nothing around, they will scout out farther and farther out to find something. And commercial beekeepers, in order to produce honey all the time, bring their bees from one crop to another. For example, where I live right now at Wima, California, we have blackberries blossoming in the spring, like May and early June, blackberries blossom. So we collect the nectar, the bees collect from, from that particular crop. Then the next thing is clover. If your neighbor, or if you are a farmer and you're growing alfalfa and you allow it to blossom, you can keep your bees there because the bees will go and work alfalfa blossoms. And alfalfa honey is very pleasant, mild honey. And, uh, you don't move them. But if you don't have anything else blossoming around, then you say, well, what should I do? You have two choices. You either feed them cane sugar, right? Mix it with water and feed them. Or your second choice, you move them somewhere where there's something's blooming. Most Californians move their bees high in the mountains and higher altitude. And they forage on blackberries that blossom there because blackberries blossom in May down in a you know, in a valley, and they blossom in June and July up in the mountains. <laughs> Some Californians move their bees to, let's say, North Dakota or South Dakota, where there's plenty of wild fields of clover, thousands of acres of wild clover, and they just put them there, and there's certain laws that they have to abide by when they move the bees. 
uh, they have to register with the county, they have uh, the rules where you don't want to put your bee yard next to somebody else's bee yard because you're interfering with that beekeeper, right? You are foraging on the same pasture. So you have to be careful and you have to find out who has bees and where they are so you don't, don't turn out to be a rude uh, Californian, right? That you come and put your bees somewhere I didn't, didn't even ask whether you, you could do that or not. So, yes, you move them around. Now, some people move their bees all the way to, let's say, um, uh, uh, California from East Coast. Why? Because in the spring, there's orchards blooming. Almond orchards. And there's big money in almond growing. That's right. That's, that's, um, that's how the almond growers entice all the beekeepers because almond growers won't have a single nut on a tree unless they have honeybees. So they offer good incentive. They offer about $150 to $250 per colony, per one colony for the beekeepers to bring the bees to their orchard. And they will guard your bees. They will have a sheriff's car running around there. They want those bees because they want the almonds. So they want about, for each row that is about quarter a mile, they want about 100 hives. And imagine how many rows they have. So they saturate their orchard with, with honeybees from all over the U.S. And, and they pay high premium price for renting the hive just for three or four weeks. You bring your hive for three or four weeks there. Um, I have about 100 hives. So last year I took them to almond growers. And by, you know, by the end of February, um, I went on a mission trip. And I, before I went to the mission trip, I brought them to the orchard. And then I came back from the mission trip. They were done pollinating. So the guy calls me up and says, hey, take your bees away. We are ready to spray the almonds. I said, oh, really? Well, wait, I'm coming. So I took the bees away, and the check came in, too. Very nice, handsome check. You know, each colony, it's about, uh, he paid me $135 uh, because my colony were not as strong. I live up in the mountains, and by the time the almonds blow in the valley, my colonies are not as strong because it's cold where I live. So if I kept my bees in a valley where it's a little warmer or down south, then my colonies will be stronger and he'd pay me a little more. But um, that still was good money per hive, yes. Uh, almond is probably... Um, most beekeepers in California rely on almond income. They, they bring a thousand beehives then. By the end of the almond pollination, they, they, they have a hefty sum of money, yes. There's an inspector there that he opens your hives and checks how much, you know, how many bees you have there. If you take the lid off and you see just white planks of frames and no bees, then you say, hey, there's no bees in this hive. Or if there are any bees, there's maybe a thousand or two thousand bees. You want each box to have about eight to ten thousand bees. And that means that when I take the lid off, they are boiling out. They are running around and you see color. You see black or yellow or blondes. They are around, you know. So they just open the lid and say, hey, no bees here. Oh, this is okay, you know, and that's how they, they do that. All right, so let's look at some of the nectar-producing plants. Uh, plums is one of most um, prominent crops in California, so we have plenty of plums. Um, wild mustard. They actually have wild mustard festivals in California. Wild mustard grows wildly, beautifully. It's beautiful fields. They come in purple, yellow, white, burgundy, beautiful fields. And the bees love that. 
Um, what else? Blackberry is the main honey producing. Plums will give you a little honey. Almonds will give you a little honey too. Almond honey is bitter. Anybody tried uh, almond honey? It's not good for marketing or for, for selling. People don't like the taste of it. There's almond essence, like bitter almond. That's how that honey tastes. <laughs> now, plum honey is similar to almond, only it's more pleasant. It's not as bitter. It has that nutty flavor, but it's very pleasant honey too. Uh, mustard honey is strong honey. Um, it crystallizes really fast. You know that raw honey that is not filtered will crystallize really fast. It will crystallize so fast, maybe within a week or two, it'll be all solid, like granules. You know what makes honey crystallize? That and temperature plus center of crystallization. Those of you who are in, in, in school or high school or studying science, in order for crystal to form, you have to have some kind of catalyst or center of crystallization. So if your honey has plenty of pollen, and pollens are tiny little grains, right? That pollen becomes center of crystallization. And there's tons of pollen that these guys produce. So when the bees grab nectar, the nectar is mixed with pollen. And as they deposit it, and if they keep it warm, it won't crystallize. But if you took the honey out of the hive, and it's cold weather and cold temperature, Within a week or two, your honey will become crystallized because of the abundance of pollen in it. So that's another good crop. Blackberries, it's main honey crop in Northern California where I am. Honey is very pleasant, dark honey. But remember this, the darker the honey, the healthier it is. Just like molasses. Molasses is so dark. It has so many minerals and micronutrients that, that, um, that makes it dark. It gives that pungent taste too. So dark honey, blackberry honey is dark. It has blackberry taste to it too. Very good honey. And I'll show you some, some honey colors in a moment. Um, now, plum honey is lighter color. It's more pleasant honey. The lightest honey I ever had was acacia honey, or we call it salkun in Romanian. <laughs> uh, and of course, we call it black honey locust here or honey locust, that's another name. They are clusters of white flowers, like grape cluster. And that honey is almost like clear water, like a, like a tear coming out of your eye. That's how clear it is. It's very clear. It's very pleasant, very mild, has very little pollen. Therefore, it doesn't crystallize for a year or two or three. Yeah. Um, it will eventually crystallize because it has some pollen that will eventually become center for crystals but it'll last for a few years without crystallization. Now, that honey is not produced very much in the US, but in the Ukraine where I'm from, Romania, and, and some portions in the US probably have honey locusts, but I don't know. But that honey is very pleasant. The closest American honey that I had is um, sweet clover honey. Sweet clover honey is very light colored, almost clear, very mild, very pleasant. That is a good thing. However, it's not as rich in what? In minerals and micronutrients. It's pleasant, but not as rich. <laughs> yes, yes, there is a way. Good question. If honey crystallized, all you need to do, put it back in warm water. You don't want it hot. Keep it at 100 degrees or so, Fahrenheit. 110 Fahrenheit. And keep it for a day or two in hot water. Don't do it in plastic, do it in a glass jar. 
and within a day or two, that crystallized honey will become liquid again. So if you don't want it to crystallize again, put it somewhere in your house in a jar where it's always warm. Some old refrigerators used to blow hot air from the top of the refrigerator. You know, if the refrigerator in your house is in a niche and it blows hot air, it eventually will come out under the cupboard, you know, somehow. If you put your honey there and it blows warm air, it won't crystallize. Some, I've seen people put it on their heater, water heater, that's electric, on top of the water heater. It stays warm. If you have a spot in your house that's warm, uh, some people put electric blanket on the floor, put their honey on it, cover it with a blanket, and it stays warm. So it's all right, it won't crystallize. But even if it crystallized, you just put it in warm water, wait a day or two, and it's back to normal state, yes. Right, you can have the bees in cold climates. You need to make sure you leave a full box, second box of honey, fully full with honey on top of them for the winter. The bees are not afraid of cold weather. They can tolerate cold weather because what they form, you remember they form the cluster. And inside of that cluster, it's like summertime for them. So they take turns from the crust, diving in, warming up, and those that are warm go out to take their turn in the cluster to keep the rest of them warm. And in the wintertime, the bees live for about six, seven months long. Because those bees were born before the winter. They have never done any hard work. Therefore, they have all the strength and resources and energy to survive long winter. Those are the only bees that live long life. Six, seven months, possibly. <laughs> and they survive as long as they have honey, right? What do they do? This cluster, the bees on the top will munch on the honey. And eventually, from the first box, they eat honey and move up. Next week, they're a little higher because they're eating honey in the second box. And they are moving higher and higher and higher. And in the spring, when it's already warming up, you'll find the cluster of the bees in the top of your colony because they ate all the honey up to the top. And if they ate all the honey and it's still cold, guess what happens? They die. Because the honey is their fuel. It's like firewood. If you live in cold climates, have no firewood, you will die of, of freezing, right? Being frozen in your own house. So it's like fuel for them. They eat the honey, and then the bees do these motions, you know. They, they just warm up inside, eat honey, produce heat, and stay warm. That's all their job for the winter. Basically, their job, the winter bee's job, is to carry the spark of life from the fall into the spring season. Then in the spring, they have one more job. They need to raise one more gen new generation of bees. So they do that, and then they die. Then the new generation will, will raise another generation. They'll bring lots of honey and all that kind of stuff. Yes? You take honey out of your hives maybe two, three, four times a year, depending on where you live and how much uh, honey flow you get there. Um, you can get anywhere from zero pounds to 200 pounds. So on a good year, you'll have 200 pounds if you, if you have plenty of blossoms around. If you don't have, you move your bees, let's say, somewhere where there's plenty of blossom, you still will get good crop. Yes. Yes, some years you get nothing. Like, for example, you have a drought, and you didn't move your bees anywhere. So you didn't get any honey. You basically feed your bees. You buy cane sugar, you mix it with water, and feed them. It's just like farming. You may plant a crop, and it fails. 
and you didn't get anything out of it. It can happen to beekeepers. Sometimes you may lose 50% of your colonies. It can happen because bees sometimes get sick and die. <laughs> it can happen to the bees. <laughs> so it can happen. So most beekeepers get, on, on average year, you get 50 pounds to 100 pounds, maybe 150. On a very good year, you can get 200 pounds of honey. But you will have to have plenty of honey-producing plants around. And when I'm saying plenty, I mean hundreds and hundreds of acres of all kinds of variety that doesn't bloom at the same time. For example, mesquite blooms in June, right? And before that, it's good to have some kind of blackberries that bloom in April. And then you want something blooming in May. Like, for example, in East and South Texas, we have Chinese tallow tree that blossoms end of May and early June. And it produces lots of honey. Chinese tallow tree uh, produces beautiful honey, pleasant honey. Even though that tree is an invasive species and it's like a weed in, East, in Southeast Texas. There's, but it produces great honey. So people bring beehives all the way from the rest of areas in Texas to collect nectar from Chinese tallow tree. Now, if you don't have good variety and hundreds of acres of something blossoming around, then you may consider, if you want honey, you may consider moving your colony somewhere where there's blossoms, some kind of blossoms. And um, you need to research that and find out what's nearby and load your bees on a truck at night, move them at night because they don't come out of the, the hive at night and unload them at night, and then in the morning they have new fields around, and they go and work those new fields. Let's look at a few more uh, producing, honey producing. Mimosa produces good nectar. Sunflower produces good nectar, but also produces lots of pollen. Therefore, sunflower honey also crystallizes very fast. All right, but you can keep it from crystallizing by warming it and keeping it warm. This is very interesting honey. Its color is almost the same as its flower. The, the sunflower honey will be like orange, bright yellow orange. Was that a question? Um, is, is it crystallizing? Yes. Yeah. You put it in warm water and it becomes thin again. Yes. Now, what? what yes. Right. Right. Um, raw honey will crystallize. Depending on the variety, it will crystallize within two, three, or five weeks it will crystallize because it has grains of pollen in it. It also has pieces of wax in it. It also has pieces of propolis in it. And those little tiny chunks of propolis and wax and pollen, what makes the honey healthy? It's not the sugar content that is healthy. Honestly speaking, honey is not a health food. It's basically sugar. What makes honey healthy is the pieces of wax, the pieces of propolis, and the pieces of pollen that you ingest with it. So it's those substances that you want in honey, all right? Those substances also make your honey very thick and crystallized very soon. So you have to find a balance. Do you want pleasant, mild, flowy honey, or do you want crystallized honey? Do you want raw honey, or do you want filtered honey? If you buy your honey at Walmart or any other you know, grocery chain, store, you will see that the honey is hardly ever crystallized. It's clear as, 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 as water, right? It may have amber color, you know, dark color, or lighter color, but it's not crystallized. Why? 
here's what the commercial uh, honey marketing uh, process is. Raw honey that was harvested is heated up very hot. It becomes as runny as water. So it's so hot, it actually so hot that it kills all the enzymes. It kills all the beneficial properties of propolis or anything else. Anything good that was there is, is killed. Then this honey that is very thin, almost like water because it's so hot, it's pumped through paper filters that filter out wax, propolis, and pollen. Anything good. That stays behind and it's thrown away in the trash, right? And then on the other end of this filter, there's this clear, very pretty honey that's coming out that's bottled in plastic jars. Maybe if you're lucky, it's, it's, it's glass jars. And it has very long shelf life because it has been filtered. And it's called grade A. And it's there on a shelf and it will be uncrystallized for years. So. It depends what you want. If you want raw honey, it will crystallize within a week, two, or five, or six. Some varieties like sweet clover will crystallize later, like um, honey locust will not crystallize for a year or two. Um, but if you want raw honey, expect it to crystallize. If you buy it and it's already crystallized, all you need to do is put it in hot water, that's all. It won't, but don't put it in too hot of a water because if you put it in water that's hotter than 120 or 30 degrees, you will be killing the enzymes and antibiotical properties of propolis and, and all the pollen will be killed too. So, you know, you don't want to do it. 110, 120 degrees water, keep it there for oh, a day or two and it'll be thin and beautiful again. Question? Okay, cool. Yeah, so... it. It's also your choice whether you want light color honey, which is very pleasant and mild, or you want dark color honey, which is strong and pungent. It's very rich in minerals and nutrients as opposed to light colored honey, which is fairly, what, what would you call it? Fairly pleasant, but not as, as rich in health. So, and here's another um, variety, um, a honey producer, sweet clover. It comes in either white or yellow, and you have thousands of wild sweet clover all over South Dakota, North Dakota, Montana. And there's lo lots of this flower, and it's just, just miles and miles of wild clover there. You just drop your hives there in, in, in June, and then in July you extract beautiful honey. Yes? Small Dutch clover also, or, or purple clover, also makes excellent honey. Yes? I don't have a picture of it because um, we don't have very much of it in California where I am. But we have sweet clover. We also have alfalfa fields. And alfalfa is a relative. All these guys, guess what? They have one thing in common with acacia tree or honey locust. These guys, they all are legumes. What does that mean? It means that they produce a little pod and have, they are bean, essentially. They have a unique ability besides producing nectar. They have a unique ability of taking nitrogen out of the air, because our air is nitrogen, mainly, <laughs> and capturing it and storing it in their roots with the help of some of the bacteria in the soil. So all these plants are unique that way. Alfalfa, clover, sweet clover, beans, soya, um, many legumes like, uh, like any kind of fava beans or garbanzo beans or peanuts, they have that ability. So. This is alfalfa, very popular in California, and they raise it not for honey or nectar. They raise it for, guess what? 
Horses. They raise it for horses there. Yep. Yes. At some point, will you be talking about GMO crops? And yes. Uh, in a moment. Uh, let's uh, talk about places to keep bees. You can keep bees in a countryside, and that's my farm in uh, East Texas. I still kept my farm in East Texas. I worked as a pastor here for 13 or 15 years in East Texas. And I still keep it. And this is the commercial way of keeping bees. You have pallets that host four hives, one, two, three, four. And, and they are loaded with a forklift onto the truck, moved to another location, unloaded. And this is one of the important tools that we use called smoker. You use some smoke to calm the bees down and send them back in a hive. You want some kind of honey-producing plants. And in East Texas, our main honey-producing plants are Chinese tallow tree. We have wild plums blooming. We also have wild persimmons blooming in the, in the woods. These are just wild woods around there. We also have blackberries. Or they call them dewberries there. We have dewberries blossoming there. In the spring, in early spring, we have a few weeds that bloom. Um, that they find um, in late, late autumn, we have goldenrod, we have goatweed all summer, and those are main, main nectar producers here in East Texas. Um, you can keep your bees in a city like here where my mother-in-law lives in Riverside, California. Uh, these are a few hives I kept in her yard, backyard. She has got like maybe a fifth of an acre. And it's between the hills. There's orange... Uh, uh, trees and uh, grapefruit and eucalyptus. There's other things that are blossoming that uh, weeds blossom in basically in the spring and winter. So I kept my bees there. However, if you keep the bees in the city, you have to check with the city ordinances because different cities have different rules about keeping bees. Some cities limited to two colonies per yard. In some cities, the rules are that you need to keep your bees a hundred yards away from the neighbors or from the road. You know, there's all kinds of rules. Check with the rules in your city or your town where you live. And it is okay, and some people keep bees in the cities. Some people keep bees in the cities on the top of their sky-rise apartments, on the roof. Yeah, I've seen that. And if the city allows it, it's okay, because cities are good in a way where every homeowner owner and the city itself decorates the city with flowers. So you may have some uh, decorative flowers that produce nectar and pollen. You may have some um, bushes and shrubs that planted by the city or by people for decoration that produce really good honey. And, uh, you know, uh, one of those is rosemary. California is full of rosemary. Anybody wants ground cover on their hill, they plant rosemary. Rosemary blossoms, beautiful lavender color blossoms that produce wonderful nectar. And, and bees collect good nectar in the city from all these flowers. There's one benefit. City waters their plants, and homeowners water their plants, so their plants are never in drought. They always produce nectar because they are watered, so that's a good benefit. Yes? Do you need flowers all year round for the bees, or do they just harvest a few months out of the year? Correct. They only harvest a few months of the year. In the winter, um, when the temperatures drop below 50 daytime, the bees stay inside of the hive all the time. They don't come out of the hive. If, even if there's flowers there, but the temperatures are below 50, the bees stay in the hive. So the dream, every beekeeper has this, this idyllic dream that the temperatures would be around 70, and, and, and it would rain in the nighttime, 
and it would be nice and sunny in the daytime. <laughs> and and that's, that's what they dream about. Uh, but it doesn't happen that way. Sometimes it's stormy and rainy in the daytime, and it keeps the bees inside because they don't fly when it's raining. So, but you're always thankful for the rain and the sunshine, no matter what time of the day or night it comes. So, also check with the ordinances of the city if you can have bees at all, because some cities do not allow bees. For example, Loma Linda, California, does not allow bees. Why? Because the houses are so close together, and there's the invasion of Africanized bees that's so dense there that many, many colonies there are Africanized. And if you're keeping your good Italian bee there, there's a chance that they will swarm and breed with some Africanized drones, and you will have Africanized colony that will be very aggressive. And there are instances, almost every year, a person or two would be stung to death in Loma Linda area by the bees, by the feral or wild bees, because you cannot manage those. For example, this spring there was an incident when a guy came to, you know those uh, irrigation control boxes in the ground where you turn the sprinklers on and off? A city worker came to this irrigation box, opened the lid, and guess what? There was a colony of wild Africanized bees there. Africanized bees attacked him immediately, and he died there on the spot. So he, evidently, he received more than 300 stings that moment. Or maybe he was allergic, because for an allergic person, an allergic person can die of one sting. Just one sting is enough for a person who has allergies to, to, to bees. So if you want to do bees, make sure you're not allergic to the bees. Uh, make sure you, you, you'll stay alive, all right? So um, here's, here's varieties of honey. See how, how dark can the honey be? Some honey could be this light. There's even lighter honey than that. Uh, there's like, like, like almost like water consistency and color. Uh, well, consistency would be thicker, but, but it's very flowy and pleasant. As I mentioned, darker honeys are richer in minerals and nutrients. Lighter honeys, they are pleasant, but not as rich in nutrients. Filtered or processed honey not raw honey is not good at all. <laughs> it's basically sugar. You might as well eat sugar, right? <laughs> so if you want some health benefits, stick with darker varieties. Amber or darker gives you more, more healthy varieties. Now these are all kinds of varieties of honey. Uh, sage honey is very pleasant. Lavender honey is very pleasant. Buckwheat honey is very healthy. Now uh, each of these varieties have their unique flavor. So, very pleasant flavors. Yes? I tried buckwheat honey. It was very strong. It's like molasses, exactly. Buckwheat honey has the taste of molasses, almost like molasses. It's that strong, yes? That's right, that's right. So, um, when you have monoculture honey, for example, you have, uh, let's say, alfalfa honey. How do you know it's alfalfa? It's because you know that around where you place your bee yard, there's hundreds of acres of alfalfa and nothing else. So you say, oh, this is monoculture. This is, so uh, my nectar that the bees found is mainly from this alfalfa. True, there will be mixture of some other weed that they find on the, on the edge of the field because there will be some um, wild mustard on the edge of the field. They'll mix it in. But 90% of your honey was actually derived from that alfalfa. So, or you took your bees to the uh, plum orchard or apple orchard for pollination. So you know that 90% of that nectar came from apples, but there will be something mixed in. There will be other weeds mixed in. 
and if you harvest the honey immediately after the plant the, the plants stop blooming and the honey is ripe then you will have m m basically monoflor honey and you can label it as apple blossom or, or alfalfa honey now for example this past year i took my bees to north dakota and i did not extract blackberry honey i let them harvest blackberry honey in california didn't take the honey out because I thought, well, let me try the, the mixture of flavors and see how the honey will turn out. So I took all the colonies to North Dakota. They collected sweet clover honey. And then in North Dakota, there's plenty of fields growing sunflowers. They mixed in sunflower nectar to it. So I extracted honey in August after all, all this nectar was collected together and mixed by the bees. The honey was beautifully flavored and darker color, but I want duck honey anyway. So it's, it's nice flavor. It, by the way, I have some, and I'll show you. And those of you who are interested, I, I even let you buy some. That's so true. You can, um, here, I'll put this right here. The, um, this is so true what you just addressed. The honey that's collected in your area will help you if you have allergies for whatever is blossoming there. And you start eating your honey from your neighborhood there. It could be like 20, 30, 40 miles away because plants would be the same within 20, 30 miles away. The pollen count will be the same. This honey will have the same pollen in it that irritates your eyes or your nose. So if you start eating the honey that's collected in your geographical area, you will be inoculating yourself, sort of like uh, getting a shot against some disease. So you're eating that uh, pollen through that honey and your immune system learns to recognize it and, and produces antibodies. So eventually, if you basically daily take a spoonful of honey that's produced locally, you will stop having allergies to whatever causes those allergies in your area. But um, if, if you know that it's local honey, it will work. But if I brought this honey that was collected in California and North Dakota, it won't work for you here. Yes? I'll tell you in a minute. I have a, I have a section called, uh, called commercial beekeeping, so I'll talk about that. But uh, this, is, this is the mixture that I talked. It's blackberry plus sweet clover plus sunflower all mixed. But the blackberry is the main color. You see this darker color? It's blackberry. And um, so let's move on. And um, what is the main contribution of the bees to society, to agriculture? Honey? No, it's cross-pollination. That's the main contribution. Um, of course, uh, your fruit and nut production or yield would be 30-40% less if it went for the bees. The bees increase your production 30 or 40%, depending on the culture. Now, almonds depend 100% on, on cross-pollination. And um, those farmers who raise <laughs> seeds, you know, some people raise, raise plants for the seed to sell seeds they also heavily rely on honeybee pollen, pollination of those plants. And those people who um, raise seeds for the oil also rely on honeybees. Yes? How serious is the disappearance of bees in North America? And let's talk about that. I'll get you to another uh, section. Commercial beekeeping. And let me put my glasses on, and we'll talk about that. All right. This is the original place where I keep bees. 
and when you move bees eventually, you will, will end up somewhere on a big semi like that, loaded with bees. If you move your bees long enough, you'll have a smaller truck like that and a forklift to load them up. What will happen, you eventually will come to some commercial crops. And here where the problems begin. If you bring your bees from idyllic you know, mountain area to some commercial area where there's crops that are grown commercially, you are exposing your bees to pesticides. You're exposing your bees to GMO crops. And as we talked before, GMO, GMO um, in itself is not as dangerous of an event as what happens when you plant GMO crop. Because the only reason we mess up with genes is to make the plant resistant to pesticides. And when we made the plant that's resistant to pesticides, then we can spray it with Roundup left and right, and the plant survives and produces well, but all other weeds are killed. So what happens with that? Let me uh, t tell you more what happens with that. What happens with, with um, this commercial type of beekeeping, that commercial beekeepers move the bees from state to state in order to find some pasture and some flowers. In the process, they encounter this commercial farming that's done on a big scale using Monsanto's products that are in itself dangerous, not just to the bees, but to the agriculture in general. Uh, what happens? All of a sudden, the bees who like variety of flowers, who like some weed here and some weed there, and they want some wild mustard, and they want some goat weed, and they want some goldenrod, and they want some other clover and some, some other alfalfa thing, they all of a sudden are finding themselves in an environment with, where, where there's monoculture, nothing else. Everything else is killed with what? With Roundup. So we have thousands of acres with one type of a blossom and nothing else. It's sort of like me eating pickles every morning and every lunch and every supper, right? That's the only thing I'm eating. It happens to the bees. It's not a good thing. Eventually, it messes up with nutrition and health of a bee. The bee becomes stressed out. Its immune system drops down because it has poor nutrition. You want variety, you want different flowers, you want different pollen, you want variety of grains, variety of nutrients and minerals in your diet. All of a sudden, we robbed the bee of ability to do that. How did we do it? We did it by implementing geomotic techniques of, of managing our crops. And that is an extreme danger to beekeeping today. Not only because it lowers the immune system, and causes bees more susceptible to all kinds of disease, including bacterial infections. One of the bacterial infections that beekeepers struggle with today is called American fowl brood. It's a disease where the larva becomes, st starts rotting, basically, on you. You take a frame out of the hive, and instead of healthy larva, you see brown, rotting larva. And it stinks. It smells like, I don't know how to describe that smell. It's a very unique smell. Basically, you smell it. You come to the hive, ooh, smells. Sort of like rotting potatoes. Anybody smell that? <laughs> um, by the way, not to gross you out, but buckwheat honey and goldenrod honey have very close f smell to American fowl brood. It's very pungent. It's not repulsive, but very strong smell. 
Also smells like chocolate, too. <laughs> uh, uh, American foul brood, it's a disease. It has certain scent to it. Right, right. So buckwheat honey has some hint of that. And, but also has a hint, like, like goldenrod pollen has a hint of chocolate taste. I collected uh, pollen from the goldenrod. It's beautiful orange color. And I take a spoonful of pollen, and it tastes like chocolates. <laughs> really, it has beautiful taste to it. So what happens? We have, uh, all of a sudden, we have lack with GMO crops. We have lack of variety. We have very weak immune system in the bees, and they fall to simple bacterial infections, which they successfully were able to fight before with propolis. They, they are not able anymore. They are weakened because their nutrition is poor. So that's the result of GMO management of the crops. We do not have variety. Now, you don't have to go to where these crops are planted. You can stay in your mountains and enjoy less honey, but healthier bees. But if you want more honey, then you may want to go and move your bees somewhere where there's crops like alfalfa and, and, uh, and uh, clover blossoming all summer. But there's a minus. The neighbor farming uh, community plants, let's say, um, sunflowers, or plants, uh, let's say, some, soybean. yeah, soybean. And they use, use pest, uh, this GMO, whatever, Roundup or whatever else they are using today, and they're killing all other plants. You end up with just one single variety in your neighborhood. So that's dangerous. Now, you brought your, your bees to alfalfa field, so you may have two varieties. You will have alfalfa predominantly, but because your neighboring farms are sprayed with Roundup, you're not getting variety of weeds and pollens that they would have gotten from other weeds, and that's the danger. <clears throat> well, there's one more danger. Um, it's called colony collapse disorder, or it's abbreviated to CCD. Uh, and it's a result of weakened immune system because of poor nutrition, as we mentioned, because of GMO um, techniques of raising crops. Besides, it somehow messes with navigation system of the bees. One day, the bee, and I, we talked about it in our ABC class, right? The bee comes out of the hive. Let's say this is the entrance to the hive. Comes out of this entrance, flies for about an hour, collects nectar and pollen, and returns back to its yard and it's going straight to that entrance because its GPS system is imprinted to go there, right? Now, if I move this colony over here, just 12 inches away, and the entrance will be here, the bee will fly out, go for about an hour around, return back, and guess where it goes? To the old spot, even though her colony is right here. So this bee navigation system will tell her, hey, either there's some miscalculation on something happened. So the bee will start going wider and wider and wider and wider until it will sense the chemical ID or the pheromone from her initial colony, and it'll find it about a foot away, and will go there. So if you want to move your bees in your yard, don't do it overnight 10 yards away. Just try to move it a foot a day or a foot every two days. You know? Then the bees will accustom, be accustomed to a new spot, another foot in two days, Three days later, another foot. Eventually, you'll move your bees where you want them. Well, there's another way to move the bees. You can move them five miles away to somebody else's farm, or if you have a farm five miles away, keep it there for months. In the summer, in one month, what happens? All the old bees will die. 
then you bring the, the, that colony into your original yard and put anywhere you want because they all are newbies and their GPS will be reset for the new location. So you'll be fine. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.